Hey, South Bend City Church, and Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you're joining us today, and we're so grateful that you're a part of our community. Today, we're in week five of our series in Romans. And if Romans 5, 8 expresses the heart of Paul's message for the followers of Jesus in Rome, then it's clear that sin is an important part of that message. And this weekend, we ask how this text describes sin and what could it mean for us today. Before we get to that, I wanted to remind you of a few things happening in the life of our community and some updates as well. First of all, family dedication gatherings are coming up in person on October 29th. As a reminder, family dedication is a chance for all kinds of families to celebrate the gift of the kids entrusted to their care, to express their commitment to help those kids know the love of God and the good news of Jesus, and for our church community to affirm those families while offering our care and support. If you and your family want to be a part of family dedication in person in our gatherings on October 29th, you can head to the registration link in the show notes below before October 17th to let us know that you want to be a part of it. As always, if you consider yourself to be a part of South Bend City Church, you can give. It's through your generosity that we're able to do what we do. And so you can head to the link in the show notes below if that's something you want to be a part of. And just a continued update, and in line with our commitment towards transparency with finances, we gave a quarterly financial report this weekend in our gatherings, and we announced the launch of our annual report. The annual report reflects over the last 18 months of our community, and we have the opportunity to share in those memories together, and you can head to the link in the show notes below to view that. All right, I'm going to turn it over to Jason to give those financial updates. Once again, we're so thankful you chose to join us today. Let's join in with the rest of our community now. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Southland City Church. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're honored that you are here on this kind of like gray, fallish day. Way to get out of bed and come to church after another disappointing night of college football. You're here. Uh, we call ourselves a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. There's a lot of big words there, important words. Uh, we get all of those from Jesus in the way that he's called us to be with one another. Uh, community, quite literally, to be with one another and to do this work together. Uh, grace and peace, um, both the generosity of God and the justice of God. Both that God gives God's self freely to us with no regard for what we've done or how we've earned it. God just gives freely, and so we want to have that same posture toward one another. But also a community of peace, a community of, of right relationship, of harmony where we follow Jesus into a way of justice, where we care about the ordering of our world and whether things are put together the way that they ought to be, right? Uh, we say that we do this both for our city and our world. Uh, we're here in the city of South Bend, and even though I know that the congregation of South Bend City Church extends far beyond South Bend, both those of you who drive surprising distances to be here, which is amazing to me, but also those who identify with this community through the podcast and other digital tools, so we extend beyond the city, but we're here to love the city of South Bend, and we want to keep growing in that regard. And then we also say that we're here for our world, and that's a way of saying that we know there's a whole globe that's connected, and we want to be part of the things that we're called to uh, beyond the city of South Bend. Uh, one of the ways that we try to take that world part of things seriously recently was to take uh, a number of our own people uh, overseas to Israel and Palestine, where last November... Uh, we sat and heard really um, beautiful and painful stories of the different experiences that shape that part of the world. And um, I have to say, uh, I've been very um, brokenhearted the last couple of days to see uh, the events there. Uh, there's a town near Gaza called Starot. And if you've been reading the news at all, you've heard a lot about Starot in the last uh, few hours. It's one of the places that's taken rocket fire uh, in this recent um, conflict. And we spend hours there every time we go. There's a family that we always meet with, and we sit in their home, and we see their bomb shelter, and we hear about what it's like for them. 
And so I've been heartbroken. Uh, I've also been heartbroken because we, every time we go, spend time um, learning about Palestinian experience under occupation. And whether it's life on the West Bank or whether it's um, life in the territories called Israel or whether it's life in Gaza, um, we have Palestinian brothers and sisters in the human family who are suffering um, immensely under occupation. And uh, I'm not here to do a TED talk on the conflict today, and there are complexities there that I don't have time to name. But I didn't want to not name anything because we're a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. And um, there's a lot of pain and hurt there. And I want Israelis to live a life of dignity and freedom and peace, and I want Palestinians to not live under occupation. And I think um, we also in the West hear a lot about Israeli experience and very little about Palestinian. And in a weekend when I've seen a lot of pastors and churches um, saying, let's pray for Israel, I just want to say let's pray for every human being there and make sure that our Palestinian brothers and sisters don't go unseen even alongside the experience of the Israelis. So that's it. Let's move on. Um, uh, it really matters. And I don't have answers today, but we want to keep growing up into our calling in the way of peace in the world. And that means um, hearing all the narratives and understanding all the experiences that shape uh, what we're going through in the world. So um, I do believe uh, in my bones that what we are here to do today actually connects to all of that, that to follow Jesus in the way of peace, to grow up um, as a church family into the calling that's upon us, uh, to take seriously the things that he teaches, that that's immensely relevant in a world where we have the headlines that we've had in the last few days. And so I don't know how that sounds to you, if that sounds um, naive or, or real, but I'm just here to tell you that's what I'm continuing to bank on, that the way that we are called to be and the work that we're called to do is actually relevant in a world uh, with the kind of violence that we're seeing right now. So I don't mean to come out of the gate heavy, but I came in heavy-hearted, and maybe you did too, having seen what's been happening there, and we want to be a, a, a place that has space for all of that. Uh, let me tell you about some other things happening in our life here. Um, family dedication is coming up. This is a, a sacred moment in our life. It'll be in our gatherings on Sunday, October 29th. Family dedication is for all kinds of families at South and City Church. We have many different kinds, but it's a chance for the adults who are raising up little ones to go on the record with their desire, their commitment to raise those little ones to know the love of God and the good news of Jesus. And we get to stand with them and affirm that commitment at family dedication. And then we as a church get to say, not only do we affirm you, but we're going to walk with you. Because we know that raising kids is complicated, that it demands everything you've got, and then some. And we want to be there for the then some. And so um, it's not just a day for the families that will do the dedicating. It's a day for the church family to say that we're in it together with you. So please don't miss this. Uh, it's a really sacred moment for us on the 29th. If you're a family that would like to be a part of dedication, just go to the What's Happening section of our website at southandcitychurch.com. You'll see that in that panel there, there's a link for family dedication. You'll get more information, and you can use the link there to let us know that you're interested. And then Karen Grant, our kids' ministry director, will follow up with you, and she'll kind of help you understand how that works, and we'd love to welcome you on the 29th. Uh, now, uh, whether you know it or not, uh, a, an important moment in the liturgical calendar has just passed us by, which is the end of the fiscal quarter. <laughs> I kid. Uh, but a couple of years ago, we, we've been trying to increase our, our transparency and our commitment to communicating about church finances. A church is so much more than its money, right? Um, but it's one of the tools that we steward, and it's one of the things that we're responsible for using well. And so in an effort to be transparent, we do these quarterly updates just to let you know where things are at. 
And so if you're the kind of person who uh, wants to lean in on this, that's great. Uh, if not, that's okay too. But we owe it to you uh, to just give you these updates. So let me tell you a little bit about church finances for the last quarter and some larger picture items about where we stand right now. Are you excited? Yes. Bless you, friends. Cool. Um, let's put the first slide up on the screen here. So uh, the first quarter of our fiscal year is the most recent quarter because our fiscal year is July 1st. So what you're seeing is also the first quarter of all of that. Uh, we take our annual budget, which is roughly 725000 and divide it by four, and we get this number for how much we should roughly be spending in our budget in the first quarter of $181,000. Um, giving during that same time was a little bit lower than that at $171,000. Um, it's helpful to know that, right? Um, I will say church giving tends to be kind of lumpy. Uh, it's not like it's super consistent month to month, uh, but you ought to know that in that quarter we were about $10,000 shy of what we planned on. The good news is our team's really frugal. Um, we try to make the most with the least, and so our actual expenditures were only $156,000, and so we're still living within our means during that same period of time. Uh, next slide. Um, this is just our sort of cash balance situation here. So at Salvin City Church, we have a number of funds. We have the general fund. That's how we pay for the lease and the staffing and the kids' curriculum and all that kind of stuff, right? And then we have other funds like the CARE Fund, uh, the Tribune Fund that's paying for the Tribune Project. And our total cash on hand from all of those funds is 352000 at the end of September. Now, the unrestricted cash on hand is the general fund money because those funds are dedicated and we don't play funny business with the funds. And so if you get to the CARE Fund, that stays in the CARE Fund until it gets used for CARE needs. If you get to the Tribune Project Fund, it goes to the Tribune Project Fund when it's called for. It doesn't go anywhere else. So what remains after you have all those designated funds is $109,416. Um, some good news and some medium news about that. Um, so uh, if you recall last August, if you were here, you know that we had to make some really difficult decisions about staff cuts with the budget because we simply couldn't sustain our, our costs uh, as a community coming out of COVID. Um, during that period, our unrestricted cash on hand, it got kind of dangerously low. I mean, it came with like less than a month's worth of regular spending, and you really don't want to live there as a community. Um, what we have today at 109000 is um, a little shy of two months' worth of unrestricted cash spending. So that's way better than it was. And our leaders have sort of set a target of a minimum of three months. And so that's moving in the right direction for us to just be uh, responsible and be able to pay our, our debts and live up to our commitments. And we'd like to see that grow a little bit further. Um, make sense? Cool. Um, total giving, I think this is interesting. Uh, this is all funds. This is in one quarter what this community has given to the general fund and the building fund and the care fund and all that stuff. And this is remarkable to me. Total giving in three months is $289,000, almost $290,000. And this is, this is even more exciting to me, less the dollar amount, but the participation. From 222 individuals and families, that's from a church community that really only runs maybe 300 to 350 people on a Sunday. And so there's a lot of people showing up to be financially supportive of this, and it's people who attend here. It's also people who've never been to Sopin City Church. It would blow your mind how many people who maybe just found the podcast or for some other reason want to support this work who live in other places are part of that number. Uh, but we're really grateful for people who show up and give. That also includes 24 first-time financial supporters who've never like, registered before with us as a financial supporter. That's really amazing, and we're really grateful. Uh, one other note that I want to make about that giving is, like I said, it funds everything that happens here, general fund, Sunday mornings, leadership for tables, and what we do with community partners. Um, it also funds care. And you ought to know that even in that period of time, like the money that you've given to the care fund has addressed needs from medical supplies, 
It's addressed rent gaps for people. Uh, you've paid for car repair. You've paid for meals. You've paid for temporary housing for people in crisis. And you've offered support for foster and adoptive families through that care fund. That's ways that that money's actually gone out uh, to meet needs during that period. And that's an important little snapshot of what that money's doing. Because it's not just keeping the lights on, although we want to keep the lights on. It's also going directly uh, to needs that are part of Southland City Church. So thank you for doing that. Um, yeah, that's a big, yeah, we can say thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, one other note about church administrative stuff, which is we just released our most recent annual report. Uh, I mentioned the fiscal year thing. Uh, we used to do our fiscal year January to December. We shifted that for planning purposes to make budget planning a little more um, uh, doable. So the most recent annual report that was put online this week actually covers 18 months. So sort of the six-month shift plus a full 12-month cycle of our new fiscal year. And you can find that <clears throat> online under the What's Happening tab. You can find all of our annual reports under our FAQ. I would encourage you, um, check that out for a couple of reasons. One, it does include a fuller accounting of our finances and how we've tried to steward the money that you give. And I think it's important not just for us to share that, but for you to know it. I think it's good for us to have our eyes on that together. But the other reason to do that is the annual report attempts to kind of tell the story of Southland City Church over 18 months, which is so much more than money. Money just happens to be one of the ways that we're able to do all of that. But I know for me, like, I tend to live, um, you know, like what's happening tonight on my calendar that I have to deal with and maybe what's happening in the week ahead and maybe I remember what happened a few days ago. Uh, but it's important to keep a, a longer perspective on our life together and we want to say thanks to God and thanks to each other for what we've experienced in the last 18 months and the annual report tells that story. And so I really mean this. If you have a chance, take some time this week, um, grab a cup of coffee, sit down at your computer, find that link under what's happening and just like reflect on our life together. It's important uh, that we keep that perspective as a community. Uh, in the annual report, you'll see uh, a reminder that we had Christmas offering like a year or two ago that included support for Neighbor to Neighbor, which is a, a local organization here in South Bend that um, works with refugees who are arriving to make sure that they have holistic support when they arrive. And I, I just gotta tell you, I don't know that there are many human experiences more vulnerable than the experience of a, of a displaced person who because of conflict, war, or other reasons has to like leave their, their home and go to a whole new place to start a life afresh. And so for us to get to show up for people who are going through that very vulnerable experience is so important. Uh, you gave uh, back at that Christmas offering and that money went to support neighbor to neighbor. So thank you. I also want to let you know that we've just learned that there's like something like 50 new refugee families that are going to be arriving shortly in South Bend. So there's a fresh call right now to show up as volunteers and to wrap some care around those families. If you go to the South Bend City Church Collective, it's a group on Facebook that we use to keep one another informed about what's going on. You'll see a fresh post there from our community leaders who are leading that charge. And this is a great chance to show up and get involved on behalf of some of these families who could use the support. So make sure you check that out. That's a way to show up not just with dollars, but with our lives and our energies and everything else that we have to offer, and we want to do that. Uh, if you'd like to give, you can always go to southlandcitychurch.com give. Uh, you can go to the general fund, the Tribune fund, or anything else that you want to be a part of. You can also always use the donation boxes that are by the door. And this concludes my heartfelt gratitude for all that you've done, and we'll move on to other matters of business today. Uh, but thank you again for um, not just listening to that, but for all the ways, whether it's giving or volunteering or praying or showing up today, that you make this community possible. Uh, before I get into where we're headed here, a reminder that uh, our open table meets on the second and fourth Sunday of the month after this gathering. And so today, right after this gathering, if you want, 
you can join. It's just a chance to share a meal together upstairs. It's, it's BYO, like food, that is. That sounds weird. Uh, bring your own food um, to the meal, and you can go out and grab some if you want and join us there. But it's just a chance to be together and share some intentional conversation for anybody who would like to be at a table with others in this community. But maybe you're not wanting to make a long-term commitment to one of our other tables that meets uh, on a regular basis, but we'd love to see you up there after the gathering. That being said, um, let me take you to a moment in time. So uh, last year I turned 40, and three of my best friends, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Last year, uh, three of my best friends uh, met up with me in Austin, Texas for a few days to celebrate. It was a really special time. Uh, we did like great meals and comedy clubs and laughed a lot. Uh, late nights and deep conversations. And at the end of all of it, we were packing up and getting ready to head to the hotel or to the airport from this building that we were staying in downtown Austin. And what I'm going to show you is the mood that we were in in that elevator. This first picture begins to sort of depict it there. That's my friend Carp leaning his head up against the wall of the elevator. My friend Seth with his eyes closed standing there. There's a picture of all four of us here next that you'll see. We're all kind of <laughs> just trying to stick it out. Now, I don't know how you're interpreting the looks on these faces or the condition that you think we are in, but what you don't understand that gives context to this is that when I took this picture, we'd been stuck in that elevator on the 14th floor for approximately an hour. Yeah. See, my friend Carp in the white t-shirt there, he didn't get the dress code memo, apparently. Uh, do you see how over his shoulder there's that metal, that black bar there, right? Okay, well, let me tell you what happened. So, um, we get on the elevator, like we're on the 14th floor or something like that of this tall high-rise building in downtown Austin. And just as we get in, the three of us, plus another guy gets in, there's another guy in addition to that guy. He's like, hold the door for us. And he's got one of those like hotel-style luggage carts. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, a, it's like a portable closet, basically, right, that you can kind of like wheel around. And he's wanting to fit this thing into the elevator. And as we see it coming, we're telling him it doesn't act like you and this and us, we can't all fit in the elevator. But he insists in a way that's a little rude. So he kind of shoves it in there, and then he's trying to get himself in around it. And as he makes room for himself on top of the cart, the door starts closing on the elevator. Now, the door gets past the first part of the cart, but then as he repositions himself, the cart gets jammed up against the door and basically jams the elevator door. We're completely locked inside this elevator. So now our next thought is like, well, what do you do when you're locked inside an elevator? I thought there were supposed to be like telephones in elevators. Because by the way, cell phones don't work in the middle of elevator shafts in the middle of large buildings, right? Like there's no signal, you know? We can't find a telephone there. There's a button you can push that says like call, and all it does apparently is like make a buzzing sound for all that we can tell. So we spend like the first 10 minutes of this like, like banging on the door and yelling and pushing the button, wondering if anybody in the world knows that we're stuck in this elevator shaft, right? This goes on for an hour. It takes the fire department showing up with this special tool. I mean, we hear like employees on the outside, like walkie-talkies and stuff, and they're like yelling at us through the door. And even the fire department can't figure out how to get us out of there at first, which is not a very comforting situation for us. But the thing you got to recognize is not so much just the, the, the boredom of being stuck in there for a while or the fear of missing our flights. The most awkward part of this is that that guy is stuck in there with us, <laughs> right? And for an hour, he doesn't say a word. No, like, gee, guys, I'm sorry I got us into this mess. Gee, maybe I shouldn't have jammed this thing in there. Gee, when you said I wasn't going to fit, I probably should have listened to you. Not a word. So we are stuck in like 10 square feet with this guy who's caused this problem for us. And all I'm thinking is, 
Just own it, bro. That's all it takes, right? Just own it. Just, it's like one sentence. Like, hey, guys, I'm really sorry I got us into this mess. And then we can start joking together, but he won't own it, so we can't joke about it. And it's just incredibly awkward for all of us for a whole hour while we're in there. We get to the bottom, and he just walks out first and doesn't say anything. Just own it. Hold on to that image. We're going to come back to it uh, later in this teaching. I bring that up uh, because of where we find ourselves today in a letter that we've been studying. The letter's called Romans. Uh, it's a letter written by a guy named Paul in the first century. Paul's in Greece, and he's writing to a community of Jesus followers in the city of Rome. He doesn't know them yet. He's never met them. He's never been there. Uh, but he hopes to go to Rome soon to be with them. And it seems that there's at least a couple of reasons why he might be writing this letter, in addition to the fact that he wants to go visit them. One is um, that there's some complicated community dynamics among the followers of Jesus. In Rome, as is the case elsewhere, there's Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus. And making that work is complicated. They have different backgrounds, different moral sensibilities, different cultural experiences. And they've got to figure out how to make that work. And perhaps the, the coming back together of Jewish believers and Gentile believers causes Paul to say, I think I'm going to like get in there and say a few things to help you work this out. It's also probably the case that Paul's aware that there's these false teachers who are traveling through the ancient world, essentially corrupting the good news that he's been spreading. And he's afraid that these false teachers are going to get to Rome before he can get to Rome. So he sends this letter perhaps to preempt the false teaching that might come their way. But whatever's going on, this is a letter full of fire. If you've read the letter, you know, like, Paul speaks with a kind of intensity in this letter. And the thing we observed a few weeks ago is that maybe the reason for that intensity is that Paul is trying to protect something so precious. Right? That when we get defensive or aggressive or protective, it's because there's something important at stake. And if that's the case, we wanted to start our study of this letter trying to understand what's so important that he's protecting it. And that's why after doing some introductory work at the beginning of the letter, we've skipped forward to the heart of the letter, which is chapters 5 through 8. And this fall, for these several weeks, we're actually hanging out right there in the middle of the letter, trying to hear the heart of what it is that's so important to him. He calls it gospel or good news. And when he says gospel or good news, he's, he's borrowing a word very cleverly from the Roman imperial context, where the empire would use that word gospel to go around the ancient world saying, good news, the empire is here. The empire has brought peace. Although the kind of peace they brought was suspect at best, and the way that they brought it was through violence. And Jesus seems to be saying, I'm a different kind of king bringing a different kind of empire that's founded on a fundamentally different kind of energy. So Paul's like celebrating this good news and defending this good news and explaining this good news. And we want to hear it again, not just as a curiosity of an ancient document, but for a community of Jesus followers in the year 2023 who want to keep growing up into our own calling as gospel people as people who like live this stuff out together, who, who protect the same things that Paul wants to protect in our midst. Uh, last week, we played around with a few words. I just kind of want to refresh you in case you weren't here for it, um, or in case you were, but the sermon was just not that memorable. That's fine. Uh, there's a few important words there, especially like in chapter 5 that we heard. Paul talks about uh, sin, law, and death. And again, this is still a recap. But one of the things that Paul seems to be doing is knowing that he's speaking to two audiences, Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus. It seems that he's trying to kind of build bridges for both of them into a common story, right? So for the Jewish followers of Jesus, law is part of their story. Back in their history, God had given them the law after God delivered them from their slavery. So 
It's, it's, a, it's a, a mountaintop, <laughs> literally moment, if you know the story. Come on. <laughs> on Mount Sinai, right, Moses gets the law from God and gives it to the people. It's a mountaintop moment in their story. So that's a really important thing for them. And their relationship to law is intrinsic to their relationship with God and their understanding of themselves as God's people. So it makes sense that for them, Paul's going to like tug on the law thing and work that out with them. And it seems that for Paul and for the people that he's writing to, there's some understanding or connection with their relationship to maybe not living up to law. Now, for them, law is not how they get into the covenant in the first place. It's how they stay there, but that's another story for another time. But law and sin is language that seems to work for Paul talking to these Jewish believers. But then he's got to bring these Gentile believers along, right? Law is not a category for them. They weren't there at Sinai. They didn't receive the Torah. It's not part of their story. But he's got another way in for them. He speaks of death. Not just like actual death, the fact that we die at the end of our lives, but the death that's all around us that we often cause. The death of any good or true or beautiful thing, right? The death of relationship, the death of aspirations that matter. It's like, it's like Paul knows and they know that death doesn't just happen to us. Death happens through us in the world. They're like we get our hands on this world and so often we destroy it rather than tend to it. That death happens not just to us, but through us, that seems to be the, the, the way in for these Gentile believers. And it's like, well, I, I can't really deny that. I know that's true. And so now, at that point, he's made some common ground for all of them to say, okay, let's come along together now into a common story, into a shared story. And one of the words he uses at the beginning of that story for all of them is sin. Now, I said this a little bit last week. I'll say a little bit more about it now. I, I keep discovering that sin is kind of a fraught, complicated word uh, in the era that we're living in right now. Um, sometimes, like, I find that people um, associate that word with some really harmful experiences in religious spaces. Maybe they feel it's been used against them uh, in really destructive ways. I, should, I say feel, that's not even fair. For some, it has been used against you in really destructive ways, in ways that I think are not right. So I'm not trying to minimize that. Um, but I said last week, I, I don't know a, a better word. Like, I don't know what we do without that word because it names something that I find no other word naming, and I want to hold on to it, but I want to kind of extricate the baby from the bathwater. And one of my ways of doing that when I'm talking with people is, first of all, by observing in broad strokes, this is, this is not really fair, but in broad strokes, there's two kinds of people, which is always a really, really unnuanced way to begin any conversation, I know, right? But in my experience, there's like two kinds of people. Um, there's people who are... Um, more quick to see that, yeah, like the individual human person has got some issues. There's some broken places in us, and we break things around us. We have a capacity for infidelity or rebellion. And for these people, I, I think it's, um, it's not really a leap to say that, like, people are sinful. Like, we, sin is part of our story. It names something true of the individual experience. And so I find people that are quick to make that move. But sometimes when they're quick to make that move, they won't follow then the movement to say that, well, what kind of systems do you think sinful people would create? And then if you suggest that maybe there's also sin or brokenness in the system, in the, in the world that we have built collectively, it's like they're maybe afraid to make that move. But I'm like, what other kind of world do you think sinful people would make? Like that does not seem like a leap to me. That, that if individuals carry this capacity for infidelity and rebellion and uh, prejudice, like that we would then create systems that also express those things, right? On the other hand, again, in my really unfair broad stroke characterization, I also find myself in conversation with people who I think are quick to see that there's sin in the system. 
that there are like broken or unjust things in the world that we have built collectively, so that in the world that exists between us, in, in the sort of collective effect there's sin there. But if I suggest or ask the question about whether, do you think that says anything about us individually, that's a hard move for them to make because maybe they've seen that used in abusive ways. But I'm just trying to argue for the whole of it. But I think it's like not a stretch to say that we discover in our lives a capacity to do uh, harmful things, to harm ourselves and to harm others, and that we discover in our lives together, in the family systems, in the communities, in the politics that we build, that they reflect the same uh, sort of proclivities to mess things up. I think that's all fair game, right? So I'm kind of arguing to hold on to the word sin because Paul seems to think it's really important uh, for the argument that he's making to bring this whole community together and to protect the good news that he wants to share. And today I just want to work that out a little further, specifically by observing like the particular, peculiar way that Paul actually talks about sin. So here I'm going to do a little survey from chapters 5, 6, and 7. I'm just going to pull some phrases. These are direct from the text. And there's something really interesting going on that you're going to see in all of these um, about the way that Paul speaks of sin. So this is first uh, in chapter 5, verse 21. This is a phrase pulled from the text. He says that sin reigned in death. In chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. In chapter 7, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, I should have like just deleted that phrase for now because we're not going to teach to that today. Ignore that. He's doing something particular with that. But sin produced in me every kind of coveting. Uh, a little while later, same phrase, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Or how about this, uh, chapter 7, verse 9, sin sprang to life. Or how about this, uh, chapter 7, verse 20. This is at the end of a kind of strange discourse that Paul like works out in this Weird kind of monologue, but he says, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now the observation here is that Paul seems to speak of sin as having its own kind of like agency or will or life. Do you sense that? Like sin is doing things. And it's pretty consistent in the way that Paul talks about sin. Now, we're going to work out what that might or might not mean in a minute. But just observe it for a moment. Sin, like sin has a life of its own almost, right? In fact, um, in the passages we just looked at, chapters 5 through 8, to be uh, technical and grammatical about it, sin is the subject of an active verb 11 times in three chapters. So go back to like high school English class and you remember your sentence structures, right? The subject is the thing that does the acting and then you have these verbs. Like sin acts, does things, seems to have a kind of life of its own. Uh, This brings to mind for me the first mention of sin in scripture, which curiously is not in the Adam and Eve story in the garden, which you might think it is, but it's not, which is curious, but we don't have time to talk about that right now. Uh, The first mention of sin in scripture occurs right after the Adam and Eve and the garden story. So Adam and Eve do what humans do, and then kids are there. And then Cain and Abel, being siblings, embark on the first ever sibling rivalry in Scripture, which is fairly predictable if you've ever had siblings or had kids who had siblings, right? But we read in the story there that um, Abel and Cain, these two brothers, they both bring a sacrifice to God, sort of an offering of worship to God. And for reasons that the text never makes clear, never really explains, God finds favor with Abel's sacrifice, but not with Cain's sacrifice. 
Now, again, it's kind of opaque and mysterious like why that would be the case or what's going on, but what we know is that Cain is faced with that age-old human dilemma, which is, what do you do when it seems like somebody else has the favor? Like, what do you do when it seems like somebody else has the blessing? This kind of age-old human dilemma. And Cain can't handle it. Cain is seething. And this is right in that moment when Cain is seething with anger. We read Scripture's first mention of the word sin. When God comes and speaks to Cain, and God says, this is peculiar, listen to this language. Sin is crouching at your door. Now, the original language there, the word used for crouching, is most typically used to describe an animal, a predatory animal that is ready to pounce on its prey. Picture the intensity of that animal, the, the focus of that animal, the, the drive in that animal that has its own life and energy that's ready to come after him, right? It's not unlike the way that we hear sin talked about in Romans. It seems to have a a kind of life or agency of its own. Now, a lot of theologians have wrestled with this. Like, is sin a, like a thing unto itself? I mean, does it actually like have a life of its own? Is it just an attribute of other things? Uh, some of the more technical language for these questions is like, you might ask is what's being described here um, ontological, meaning does it, is, it, is it its own thing with its own existence? Or on the other hand, is it like just a metaphor? Or like a third possibility, is there something emergent going on here as a property, which might mean something like, um, you know, like when people get together, something can emerge in our midst that can't be located individually in any given person. This is sort of like systems theory and emergent properties, right? Here's kind of a not perfect example, but it might work for you. Uh, when South and City Church decided that we were going to buy the Tribune building downtown and renovate it, which is what we're doing right now, um, we reflected on that decision together, we had discernment meetings together, we raised money together, and then we decided together to do this thing. Well, that's kind of an interesting thing to say, because South and City Church like, didn't exist in the year 2015, and now it has these sort of collective properties that reflect a sort of a group dynamic here that emerges from our collective conversation, right? Uh, sometimes when you study big institutions, like really big institutions, massive corporations or whatnot, you, you'll, you'll like see them behaving or acting in a way that's actually pretty hard to pinpoint on any person. They have this kind of emergent energy or inertia or momentum. This is something that people observe when they look at big systems. And there's questions about whether part of what's going on with sin seeming to have a life of its own. Is, is this the thing that emerges when a bunch of individual humans sort of collectively live out our capacities for violence, for failure, for betrayal, that like a thing emerge, like a third thing emerges in the midst of us that has its own energy. And I'm gonna give you the answer now, which is I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, there are different theological perspectives on this question of like what's really going on with sin. And I think they're all really fruitful and interesting and helpful for us to consider. But today, what I wanna observe that perhaps is more useful for us is that whatever is going on, whether this, this, this language of sin having a life of its own, whatever is going on, I find in my experience this is a really apt description. Because on the days when I run into the limits of my own will or character, on the day when I find myself failing in ways that um, matter to me or to others, on the days when I find my capacity to harm others or to not live up, it can feel like I'm up against something bigger than me. Have you ever felt that? 
Not every day, not every moment, I don't think. There are days when you feel the wind at your back and you are able to soar like morally, right? But then there are the other days and the other moments. And I relate to this feeling sometimes that we are up against something, right? And this is useful because I think it's really dangerous when we're naive about that. Uh, again, whether you think of it as sin actually having a life of its own or this metaphor just naming something that's true, Paul, as he brings us along in the story that's going to get us to the good news that he wants to share, seems to want us to like name, recognize, come face to face with the fact that we are up against something, right? And naivety might be the most dangerous way to approach it. Um, I am an unrepentant fanboy of the West Wing, the TV show. Uh, any other fans in the room? Am I alone? A few of us? All right. Yeah. Mostly I, I retreat to it as an alternative universe when American politics is just too depressing for me, right? Um, if you don't know The West Wing, it's a TV show from the late 90s and early 2000s in which Martin Sheen plays the president of the United States who went to Notre Dame. His character did. Um, and uh, it takes place in the White House and tells all kinds of plot lines from that story. Uh, right now, I'm in a part of the plot line toward the end of the series where as President Bartlett's second term is wrapping up, the action shifts to a couple of candidates who might potentially succeed him in office. And this just struck me as um, so interesting just the other day. One of those candidates, his character's name is Matthew Santos. And Matthew Santos is a representative in Congress from the state of Texas who has been sort of plucked, sort of picked, sort of called out by this high-powered Democratic operative whose character's name is Joshua Lyman who works in the White House. And Lyman thinks that Santos is the guy for the job. So he recruits him to run for president. And the thing about Santos is he's never run for office at a national level. He's got this kind of like very like winsome sort of rogue, like I don't play the politics game kind of attitude that makes him kind of seem strong, but also makes him incredibly naive to the things that he's up against. And early in his effort to win some primaries like Iowa and New Hampshire, he's out there on the road with Joshua Lyman, this guy who's very, very well seasoned in all of the brutalities of national politics and federal elections. And Josh is trying to get Congressman Santos to recognize that it's time to do some opposition research. And Santos isn't having it. Santos hears opposition research and thinks that's when we like dig up dirt on our opponents and we hold it in our back pocket to use it at the most hurtful moment to like sling some mud and bring them down. And there's an interesting breaking point in the plot where you find out and Congressman Santos finds out that the opposition research that Josh was talking about wasn't on his opponents, it was on him. There's uh, little things leaking out of Congressman Santos's story that are useful for his opponents in the election, and they catch the campaign off guard because they've been too naive about what they're doing. And you can see Lyman trying to help Santos understand, like, you are about to run into some oppositional forces that you've never encountered before. Like, you're reaching for the highest office in the land, and if you think that you can do this with the same kind of naivety with which you won, like, state office, you're about to be very unpleasantly surprised. He has this interesting line. He says to the congressman, he says, nothing is fatal as long as I know about it. But I have to know about it. We can't be naive about it. It's got to be named. It's got to be right in front of us. And I couldn't help but think about it for a couple of reasons. One, like, I think it's possible to be naive about what we're up against. Now, for the record, I don't have a doom and gloom picture of human nature or the world at large. I think we need to take seriously these things. I don't think they're the ultimate things. I don't think it's the truest thing about you or me that sin's part of our story, but I do think it's part of our story, and it's not going to be naive about it, and you're not going to understand Paul's logic without it, right? But there's another point 
that makes that story so compelling to me from the West Wing, which is simply this. The reason the opposition is mounting against Congressman Santos is that he's reaching for that highest office in the land. He's reaching for the sort of pinnacle of power in the world, right? Like that's what stirs up the opposition. And there's a plot line that runs through and through Scripture from the first page of Scripture to the last page of Scripture that reminds us that to be human is to be given an immense kind of power in the world. At the beginning, we are bearers of the divine image. That is high language for the human vocation in the world, that you and I are here to get our hands on the raw materials of this world and make the same kinds of beautiful things with it that God wants to make with it. That's not um, a low estimation of the human vocation. That's a high calling on us, right? And you go all the way to the end of Scripture, and maybe you think for a moment that we've lost the plot and we've never recovered it, but at the very end of Scripture, the last things that we learn about our life with God and in the new world that God wants to make is that we will reign with God forever. I don't know what's going on metaphysically or ontologically, but, but I do know this story tells us that, that we are here to live with a certain kind of power in the world, and maybe that explains some of the opposition that we run up against. I don't have the whole storyline figured out, but I'm, I'm quite convinced that we are here to do something significant in the world, that our lives matter profoundly in the world, and that the opposition that we run up against, that's not a reason to shame yourself, it's a reason to hold your head high, but don't be naive about the fact that we may be up against some things that are um, going to have a life of their own. It is high stakes to be human, whether you like it or not. I think God intends that as a compliment. It's high stakes to be human, whether we like it or not. And if you're living a high stakes life, you might find that there are some oppositions that you run into along the way. Now, um, this is tricky for me because... Um, I feel pretty strongly that it's important for us to sit with this piece of the puzzle for more than like a minute. And next week I want to move on because there's so much more to say. This is just one piece in the puzzle. And the hard thing for me is I just know that like nobody comes to church every week anymore. So I'm left with the like pastorally complicated position of like dropping this on you and being like, see you next week. I'm hoping that it's not too like heavy or hard, but I think it's really important that we sit with this for a moment and consider this part of the story that Paul is telling and whether it names anything important or helpful for us. One other note about the language of sin um, and the limits that we run into both individually and collectively as we try to just like own it, right? One other note. Um, I think the language of sin, the, one of the gifts of it is that it locates these struggles of ours in a really big cosmic and theological context, and I think that's important. Um, in the modern era, we've developed a lot of other kinds of language for our struggles and the things that we run into, and I want all of it. I think it's all useful. I'm thankful for therapeutic language and clinical language. I'm thankful for our growing understanding of things like addiction and the diseases that like, shape our behaviors. I think these are critical and important. However, that other body of language doesn't locate these struggles of ours in the cosmic story that I think we are actually a part of. Another way of saying this from a philosopher named Charles Taylor is that um, we try to hold everything in an imminent frame. We kind of locate our lives and our struggles in a frame that's as small as our brains or our bodies or our personal histories. And I'm also at the same time looking for language that casts our individual stories against that horizon of the infinite. That, that sees that like, to be human is so high stakes 
that we need more than clinical language to describe what we are up against. And this is why I think the language of sin is so helpful, because it locates us in that big cosmic story. And in the next couple of weeks, don't miss them. You're going to find out all the good that's told in that big cosmic story. But we got to like get the hook there of this language of sin, because it locates us in frames that are not just clinical, but are also um, theological and metaphysical and eternal, dare I say. And I think that um, to be located in that frame is to actually hold our heads high, even while we try to own it and take seriously some of the questions of what we mean by sin. So please, for the love of God, come back next week and the week after. (laughs) Uh, But this week, uh, I thought it would just be helpful to sit with a few questions. And um, as I share these questions with you, I want you to hold on to a new mantra. We should, like, make art for this. Here's the new mantra. Name it, don't shame it. Can you say that? Yeah, thank you. Name it, don't shame it, right? We're not talking about shaming it. Um, To name sin is to not identify ourselves. There is so much more to you and me than that. But to not name it is to be unbelievably naive, right? As is always the case with these kinds of practices, this is like an opt-in or opt-out moment. I don't mean to coerce you in any way. But if you find this to be a helpful space of reflection, then I invite you to uh, follow the lead of this prayer, and then I'll offer some questions that are simply help, uh, meant to, to help us reflect on the things that we are up against when we name the language of sin. Uh, now, whatever posture helps you uh, receive these questions, feel free to take that posture on. And I'll share these slowly. I'll repeat them a couple of times. And uh, you might just simply observe if they name anything for you or draw your awareness to anything in particular, uh, we begin here. Where do I feel like I'm up against something bigger than me that takes me in the direction of death, not life, from myself or others? Name it, don't shame it. Where do I feel like I'm up against something bigger than me that takes me in the direction of death, not life, for myself or others? And next. What does my conscience tell me about my life? What a gift that we've been given this interior sense of right and wrong that speaks to us. Let it speak now. What does my conscience tell me about my life? And next, remember, name it, don't shame it. What does the spirit grieve in my life? If God is with us and in us and breathing for us, and desiring that good would come through us, then what does that spirit grieve in my life? And now we expand to a larger sense of responsibility and awareness as we think about not just our individual lives but the world that we have created together. Where are we up against something bigger than us 
that takes us in the direction of death, not life. Maybe this name's something for you in a family system or a neighborhood, a workplace or a school. Maybe this name's something for you in our city or in our nation. Maybe this name's for you the painful headlines that we've seen in the last few days. But where are we up against something bigger than us that takes us in the direction of death, not life? next. What does my conscience tell me about our world? About the environments I participate in and shape? About the systems that affect those who live within them? What does my conscience tell me about our world? About the environments I participate in and shape? About the systems that affect those who live within them? Name it, don't shame it. And finally this, what does the Spirit grieve in our world? Believing that God loves the world, that God sees the world, that God desires a world of peace and justice. What does the Spirit grieve in our world? I know that could be a seemingly endless list. We are exposed to so much. But the invitation here is not just to think with our minds, but to welcome a spirit that might name something individual or particular to be brought to our attention today. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? Sin is not the only story that Paul is telling. In fact, it's not even the major story, I don't think. It's just, it's part of the story, but the rest of it makes more sense when we start here. And so I hope we'll continue to hear that together in the next few weeks. May you trust uh, the scripture that names in some strange way that we are up against it. And may you not feel uh, too defeated or surprised when you find out that there is more going on here than meets the eye. But when you run into the limits of yourself or when we run into the limits of our capacities, may we begin to discover that there is more at work here that is for us than is against us. And in the meantime, may we be honest enough to name the places where we fall short. And in doing so, may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.